0: Turn one last time to the final passage of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew uh, chapter 7. Those of you who've been with us know that we've been in a series that we began back, uh, actually back earlier in the fall on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've called the series Stranger Things Life in the Right Side Up, adopting it from the hit Netflix show by the same name. Because throughout this sermon, Jesus continues to drive home the point that life as we know it, the world that you see around you, the world that you were born into, is upside down. It's upside down from the world that God originally created. Jesus also announces in this sermon that for the first time in human history, it is possible to live right side up even now in this upside down world. But the only way to do it, is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now you ask, well, why in the world would I care about living right side up? Well, the Hebrew answer to that question is the word shalom. Those who learn to live right side up increasingly experience shalom as they put into practice what Jesus teaches in this sermon. Shalom is a word that refers to wholeness, peace, a sense of meaning and purpose in life, emotional health sense of overall well-being. In other words, genuinely flourishing as a human being. That's what Jesus wants for you. And that's what he's inviting you into in the Sermon on the Mount, Shalom. And isn't that, isn't that what you want? Don't you want that as a person to flourish? Experience a sense of wholeness? Isn't that really what everyone wants? And yet after 2,000 years of sermons preached on this sermon, And after 2,000 years of books written on this sermon, so few people today would say that they're flourishing, including people sitting in churches who would say that they're followers of Jesus. Why is that? And why aren't you flourishing more? I think Jesus answers that in this final passage of the sermon. Look at chapter 7, verse 13. Chapter 7, the book of Matthew, verse 13. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven here. In other words, right side up living. It says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. I think you'd be wise to make a note of this. That one reason that you aren't flourishing is that the ideas you live by might be destroying you. Uh, The ideas that you live by might be destroying you. I really think that if you look at these two verses carefully, you'll see that the key to those verses is the word find in verse 14. Only a few will find it, Jesus says. And the it that he's describing here is truth, true ideas about life, the meaning of life, and how best to live it. Why? Why do so people, why do so few people find it? Well, think about what's involved in searching for and And finding something. Well, first you have to know you don't have something that you need. Either you lost it, you never had it in the first place. And as it relates to truth, most of us don't realize that we need to find truth about life because we just assume that our perception of life corresponds with reality. And here's here's what I mean by that. You're born into a world that was spinning long before you came into it. And so almost immediately, people start to teach you ideas about life Your parents, your teachers, your peers, culture at large, commercials, ads, celebrities, they all teach you ideas about life. And actually the most powerful ideas are ones that no one even taught you, you just absorb them from the culture. And those ideas usually come from dead philosophers. John Maynard Keynes, uh, the founder of modern macroeconomics, once wrote this. He said, The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they're right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct philosopher. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years so you you come into the world, and you are taught or you absorb a bunch of ideas that run your life that you assume to be true. Now, let me just give you an example of a really small one. This is like a non-consequential one, but let me just give you an example. How many of you subscribe to the idea that uh, you should date someone before you get married and that you're supposed to feel something emotionally for the person you marry? How many of you would, would agree with that? Yeah, yeah, most of you are like, yeah, sure, of course, right? But uh, prior to the mid-1800s, people were way more functional than that. like you have a cow, you have a cow, I have a house, let's get married. It wasn't until philosophers came along. In the 1800s, these philosophers were known as romanticists. It wasn't until then that the idea of dating and feeling someone for someone before you got married even was a thing. But you didn't know that till just now. Like you took it for granted that that was always the case. See, this is the way it works. Most of us don't even know that we need to find truth because we assume that what we have been taught and the ideas that we have absorbed are absolute truth and that they correspond with reality. There's something else about searching and finding truth. Uh, you're not going to go out and find something. You're not going to search for something and find it unless you think it's worth finding, are you? And some of you are going to judge me for this. But when I was a kid, if I lost a penny, I'd search high and low to find it. Today, I'm not going to the trouble. It's not worth it. Sorry. And I got to be honest with you, every year that my body gets older, the amount of money that is worth bending over to pick up uh, just increases every year. I think I'm up to about a dollar now. Anything less than a dollar, it is not worth bending over to pick up. It hurts too much to get back up. In the same way, some people don't think truth is worth finding. Maybe... Maybe because they don't think there's such a thing as truth, so why go on a search for it? Maybe they would say, well, you know, maybe there is truth, but you can't know it. Whatever the reason, it's not something they value. They're not going to go on search for it. They're not going to find it. Well, there's something inv- uh, else involved in searching and finding something. you got to know where to search for it. Right? You've got to know where to look for it. That's often the biggest problem in searching for something, isn't it? Try, try to find th- the person responsible for something that you need like in a large government bureaucracy or a large corporation. Try to find the person responsible and and you will find yourself in the ninth ring of Dante's Inferno speaking to automated phone assistants over and over and over and over. You will find yourself in this constantly downward spiral of automated phone assistants because you don't know where to search for it. You don't know where to find it. But as it relates to truth, Jesus, in these verses, doesn't hide where to search for it and find it. In fact, Jesus makes a very bold and politically incorrect claim here, so much so that I got to tell you that I reflexively flinch at the idea of pointing it out, because he's saying in metaphorical terms that he is the source of truth. That's the small gate and the narrow path metaphor. You want to find truth? Go to him. He doesn't leave you guessing about where to go to search for truth. Again, I realize this is profoundly politically incorrect to say. Jesus doesn't seem to understand the rules of a postmodern culture. You can't be that exclusive. You must say that there are many right ideas about life and many right worldviews and that all of them are equally good and they all lead to the same end, whether they come from your parents or Taylor Swift or Beyonce or George Clooney or Bertrand Russell or Mahatma Gandhi or Muhammad. They're all equally good and they're all equally true ideas about life. But that isn't what Jesus says. Uh, He doesn't have to follow the rules of postmodernity. He isn't concerned about whether you like what he has to say or not. He's deeply concerned about the well being of your soul. And so he says there is no shortage of bad ideas and untruths about life in the cultural and philosophical marketplace that will lead to human misery. That's the whole wide gate and the whole broad road that leads to destruction metaphor. Crushing anxiety broken relationships, a sense of meaninglessness, soul-sucking addiction, sexually transmitted diseases, a nagging sense of shame, joyless cynicism, jealousy, envy, despondency, and I could go on and on and on. Jesus says there is no shortage of bad ideas. There is a wide array. There's an enormous diversity of terrible ideas about life that will destroy you. And he says that the reason that so few people flourish is that they don't search for truth in him. Some just drift along in life never realizing that the ideas that they live by aren't working for them. Some people don't think truth is worth worth searching for. They don't believe you can find it. As I said a moment ago, there's no such thing as truth they would say. Others reject the notion that Jesus is the source of truth. And so they spend their lives denying him, looking for truth in all of the wrong places. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard writes this. It is one of the major transitions of life to recognize who has taught us, mastered us, and then to evaluate the results in us of their teaching. This is a harrowing task. And sometimes we just can't face it But it can also open the door to choose other masters, possibly better masters, and one master above all. Have you ever taken the time to evaluate and assess where you got the ideas that you live your life by, and and how are they working for you? Where would you get the idea that you have to be the best at everything you do? Where would that idea come from? Who taught you that? Where did you get the idea that other people's opinion of you defines your worth? Where'd that idea come from? Where'd you get the idea that the rest of your life hinges on you getting into the right college if you're a student? Where'd you get those ideas? And what are those ideas doing to you? It's the effect that they're having on your life? Just a few short chapters after this when Jesus says... Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble and hard, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anyone here this morning feel weary? Anyone here this morning feel tired? Stressed out? Need rest? Maybe it's time to take a close look at the source of the your ideas about life and where you got those ideas, how those ideas are working for you or not working for you, as it were. Because the ideas that you live by may very well be destroyed. Those ideas may be the reason that you're not flourishing. There's a second reason that you might not be flourishing. Jesus talks about it here in verse 15. Somewhere along the line, let me just say it and then we'll read the verse. Somewhere along the line, you may have been deceived uh, by false prophets. That may be a reason that you're not flourishing. You may have been deceived by false prophets. Verse 15, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, underline that word inwardly, They are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. Bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them, these false prophets. I highlighted the word inwardly. I wanted you to highlight it. Because you may remember that I've said throughout the series that unlike any other religion, Christianity is not concerned with behavior modification. Christianity argues that the problem with humanity is in the heart. It's not merely our behavior. We're sinful, we're self-centered, we're narcissistic people. Out for ourselves at all costs. That's the problem with humanity. And so our hearts have to be changed. And Jesus says that there are false prophets out there who disguise themselves as sheep. Sheep was was one of the central metaphors that Jesus used to describe his disciples. He says these false prophets disguise themselves as sheep, but they're actually wolves. There's a big difference between sheep and wolves. Sheep aren't predators. Wolves are. Wolves are looking to eat sheep. False prophets disguise themselves as people who are being transformed inwardly, but they're not. Look down at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Notice that line. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's very interesting to me that twice Jesus refers here to the words that come out of the mouths of these false prophets. They say, Lord, Lord, and they speak prophecy in his name. I wonder if you think that you would know a false prophet if you heard one speak. Would you be able to identify one? Would you be able to discern a false prophet? Imagine with me uh, for a moment that you take a trip to Indianapolis friend of yours invites you to his or her church. You say, sure, what's, what's, what's the name of the church? Your friend says, well, it's the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ. And it's awesome, your friend says. And so you say, great, it must be legit. It's got the words Temple, Disciples, and Christ in it. There's a ton of people there. Music is great. Pastor gets up and speaks. He's, he's a great communicator. And he's very charismatic. And he's speaking about how there are so many preachers out there who just want your money. And you're like nodding your head. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's true. There are. This guy gets it. And the pastor goes on and he says, all they want is your money. And then he begins a quote from the Bible and he says, Jesus said, You've cleaned the outside of a platter, but the inside you've filled with all kinds of things. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they're full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside may be clean also. And he says, that's what I have to say to you today. And you walk out and you say, that was great. <laughs> he was so on the money, he was on point. I got out a lot, I got a lot out of that today. Except that was a direct quote from a sermon preached by none other than the Reverend Jim Jones, who some of you may know started a church in Indianapolis and then ultimately moved it to a remote part of the South American nation of Guyana in a place he named Jonestown, where 918 members of his church committed mass suicide under his leadership, drinking Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. And you ask, how could it be? He used so much scripture in his sermon. He seemed so gifted, so talented, so sincere. Well, you just need to understand something. Every false prophet worth his salt is gifted, talented, and acts sincere. Every false prophet who is worth his salt is a great communicator. Every false prophet is a charismatic leader. Every false prophet is cunning enough to use religious language. Lord, Lord, Jesus says, to convince the undiscerning into following him. And they often have huge followings. And yet Jesus says they are wolves. They are governed merely by their own selfish desires. And Jesus says that the way to identify false prophets is to pay little attention to their communication skills and little attention to their charisma and little attention to their following and pay close attention to the content of their message and what they do. That's what all of this talk about trees and fruits is about. Trees and plants manifest their nature by their fruit figs by big fig fig trees by bearing figs not grapes and what false prophets teach and what they do reveal the kind of person that they really are not all false prophets are physically lethal as jim jones was let's acknowledge that some aren't physically lethal some aren't looking to kill you physically to get you to drink literal Kool-Aid Some simply deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Some simply deny the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Some simply deny the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. Some deny that Jesus' death on the cross was enough and that you must follow certain laws and codes of conduct to be saved. Jesus says, beware of these false prophets because they are all destructive to your well-being. I want to tell you something. Listen to me on this. There are false prophets among us here in Evansville. And not everyone with communication skills and charisma who says, Lord, Lord, and quotes from the Bible is telling you and leading you into the truth. And in fact, they may, le- they may very well be leading you down the path of destruction. And if you want to know why you may not be flourishing, it's that very well you may have been deceived by a false prophet. And I'm going to tell you something that is likely very unpopular. But the only way that you'll learn how to discern who a false prophet is and isn't is by pursuing truth in your Bible. You'll have to learn it. And I know that's not popular these days. There's so many other things that distract for your attention, right? But Jesus would tell you that the most important pursuit of your life is not the, not the pursuit of success, not the pursuit of wealth, a career, not the pursuit of a spouse, a marriage, or anything else. The most important pursuit of your life is the pursuit of truth and you're going to ask yourself how much confidence do you, you're going to have to ask yourself how much confidence do you have in Jesus when he says that does he really understand life in the 21st century or not if you think that he understands life in the 21st century you will say that the most important pursuit of my uh, in my life is the pursuit of truth and if you don't think that he's got much to say to life in the 21st century you'll say ignore that i'm going to go on But the only way you'll know if you come across a false prophet is by studying, learning that book that says that it's alive in the 21st century. Third reason that you might not be flourishing, Jesus says in verse 24, it's because you know the truth but you don't put it into practice. Like, you know the truth, but you don't put it into practice. Practice. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash you know the truth but you don't put it into practice that's what jesus is saying here there are many reasons that people hear jesus words even sit in churches even not in agreement of jesus words but then but then don't put them into practice could be as i just said a moment ago that you just don't have confidence in jesus you don't think that he gets life in the 21st century all of these things that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, they seem an ivory tower to you. It couldn't work today, you say to yourself. Maybe you don't put these words into practice because you've been deceived by a false prophet who told you that if you would obey, you would always experience health and wealth, but that didn't happen to you and you're angry about it all and you're cynical now. Would you just please notice that Jesus never promised that. Even in this illustration. Did you, did you see it in this illustration? Even, the per, even in this illustration, the person who did put Jesus' words into practice got hit by the same storms that those who didn't obey Jesus got hit by. It's just that one was able to withstand it all because they built their life on the foundation of Jesus as the source of truth. Maybe you haven't put these things into practice because you're fearful. You think if I live, if I live like Jesus says to in this sermon, if I love my enemies, if I turn my cheek, and if I if I don't hoard my money, and if I don't lust for women, and all the rest of the stuff that Jesus talks about here, I'm going to miss out. Who in the world's going to take care of me? Who in the world is going to miss my? Uh, who in the world is going to meet my needs? Maybe that's why you don't obey. But don't you see? That's the promise that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount way back uh, back, in, back in the early part of the sermon. He says, he says, don't worry. He says, don't worry. Your Father knows what you need. And it's a promise that for the person who trusts Him and obeys Him, that God the Father will be for you everything you need. But there's nothing, everything that you need, he will be for you. He'll be the beauty that you need when you decide not to lust for women. He'll be the financial security that you need when you decide, I'm not going to hoard my money. He'll be the identity and the security that you need when you decide, I'm not going to live for other people's opinions of me. I'm not going to live for the applause of other people. He'll be your identity, your approval. He'll be everything for you that you need. There's this line from the end of one of the most well-known Psalms in the Bible. It has been on my, it's been on my mind a lot lately, just kind of... Uh, you ever had that happen where there's just some verse or passage of Scripture that just keeps just hounding you? And it's this one, it comes from Psalm 23, it's verse 6. Surely your goodness and your mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Do you believe that God is good and merciful? Do you believe that he's good and merciful? Do you believe that his goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of my life? Look back. you know. This is the way you come to an understanding of this. You look back at what Jesus did on the cross for you. If he did all of that for you in the past, why would he go to such trouble and pain and and experience such loss to redeem you, only to abandon you in the future when you put his teachings into practice? Why would he do that? God promises to us in this sermon that his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our, our lives. He will be everything for you that you need. So you can trust him and put these words into practice without fear. Because that's the problem. That's the reason. That's one of the reasons that some of you aren't flourishing. You hear his words. You know his words. You're not in agreement with his words. You just don't put them into practice. Lots of bad ideas that may be destroying you. There are false prophets out there that may be destroying you, and it may be that you aren't putting his words into practice. But I need to close, and since this is the end of this series, I want to close the whole series up with this. Matthew tells us in verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. Would you underline that word amazed? Highlight that word amazed? They were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I want you to highlight the word amazed because the English word amazed is so overused that it really loses the power of the reaction to Jesus' sermon that these people have. The Greek word behind it is the word ekklesa, which literally means, and listen to this, to be astounded to such a degree that you lose your mental composure. Now that's a strong, I got to tell you, that is a strong response to a sermon. Seriously, no one has ever responded to a sermon of mine like that, ever. But if you just think about this final passage of the sermon, I think it will make sense to you why they lost their mental composure. I don't know if it occurred to you or not, but throughout these final verses, Jesus keeps giving us only two choices in life. There are two gates, there are two roads, there are two destinations, life and destruction. There are two groups, the few and the many, two kinds of trees, the good and the bad, which produce two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad, two kinds of people who profess faith in Christ, the sincere and the false, two kinds of builders, the wise and foolish, two foundations, the rock and the sand, and two houses, the one that stands and the one that falls. And when you hear the repeated emphasis on the two choices, you can understand, can't you, how people might lose their mental composure. Jesus isn't just inspiring people in this sermon. He's not just telling them to be middle class nice. No one loses their mental composure over being inspired or told to be nice. No, Jesus is turning their world, at well, he's turning their world right side up. He's saying things that are subversive to the fundamental ideas that they have had about reality, and not just subversive to their ideas. Jesus is saying things that are subversive to every authority who who would set itself up against him. Religious leaders, political leaders, churches, denominations, dictators, monarchs, presidents, whole cultures, professors, business leaders, musicians, actors, and athletes. He's saying, I am the way, and there is no other way. Follow me and live. Follow your religious leaders, the Pharisees, and you will die. Follow me and you will live. Follow Gandhi and you will die. Follow me and live. Follow Muhammad and you will die. And if you're not losing your mental composure right now, even just a little, you're not getting the offensiveness of Jesus' sermon. Because you see, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is made clear, powerful people hate it because Jesus undermines their authority. Moral people hate it because the gospel gives us a God more holy than a moralist can bear. And it says no matter how moral you are, you must come under the cross of Jesus Christ. Relativists hate it because the gospel gives us a God more loving than their inclusivity-loving hearts can imagine. It is an offensive message, one that should cause you to lose your mental composure at least just a little. But in the end, but in the end, It is only the joy and the wonder of that gospel that can so reprogram your heart that it will change you permanently into the kind of person who Jesus describes in this sermon. A right-side-up kind of person. Or as we said throughout this series, a person who is being so deeply transformed by God's grace. God's grace, that they are increasingly committed to promoting the well-being of everyone in their world, even their enemies, and as a result, they're experiencing ever-increasing amounts of shalom. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? These words are stunning, Lord Jesus. When we understand them, we must come to a place where we lose our mental composure, just a little at least. Because what you have told us in this sermon is that we don't have the answer in and of ourselves. No one else has the answer except you. And that the only way to live right side up in this upside down world is to become a disciple of yours, Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that City Church and that the people of City Church would pursue discipleship under you, Lord Jesus. Pray that we would take the time, perhaps today, uh, even this week, to examine some of the ideas that we have come to live by, where we got those and the results that they're having in our lives. And that we would search for truth in you and you alone. Pray that we would beware of false prophets and that we would learn what is in the Bible, truth, so that we can discern who those false prophets are and that we would increasingly put your words in this sermon into practice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us on the cross in the past. And thank you for the promise in the Sermon on the Mount that you will be for us everything that we need. Everything that we need. As we obey these words. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship in the